Welcome to Palmdale United Methodist Church's podcast for Sunday, January 30th, 2022. May God use this as a blessing to you today. Let us pray. God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. You are indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Once upon a time in a land far away, a young prince lived in a shining castle, and although he had everything that his heart desired, the prince was spoiled, selfish, and unkind. But then one winter's night, an old beggar woman came to the castle and offered him a single rose in return for shelter from the bitter cold. Repulsed by her haggard appearance, the prince sneered at the gift and turned the old woman away. But she warned him not to be deceived by appearances, for beauty is to be found from within. And when he dismissed her again, the old woman's ugliness melted away to reveal a beautiful enchantress. The prince tried to apologize, but it was too late, for she had seen that there was no love in his heart. And as punishment, she transformed him into a hideous beast and placed a powerful spell upon the castle and all who lived there. Ashamed of his monstrous form, the beast concealed himself inside his castle with a magic mirror as his only window to the outside world. The rose that she had offered was truly an enchanted rose, which would bloom until his 21st year. If he could learn to love another and earn her love in return by the time the last petal fell, then the spell would be broken. If not, he would be doomed to remain a beast for all time. As the years passed, he fell into despair and lost all hope. For who could ever learn to love a beast? Thus begins the 1991 Disney animated masterpiece, The Beauty and the Beast, An unannounced guest in disguise is what sets the entire drama off and running, along with the cautionary uh, note not to be deceived by appearances. And that's exactly what will lead us into today's sermon. Welcome to the second week of a brand new series entitled Stranger, Finding God in Unexpected Places. Now, the word stranger has at least two different meanings. First, when you meet someone that you don't know or you weren't expecting, you often refer to them as a stranger. The various stories that we'll be looking at in this series all center around a particular Bible character and their encounter with God in unexpected ways and unexpected places. Second, the dictionary definition of strange is unusual or surprising in a way that is unsettling or hard to understand. Hmm. I think with this series, if you engage uh, with these stories uh, and take them seriously, you'll find that they're kind of like spiritual calisthenics. Uh, It might be a little painful as we go through it, but we'll help stretch and grow your faith. And rest assured, the stories we'll be looking at in this series are indeed a bit stranger than the ones we normally uh, hear preached on Sunday mornings. The series is inspired by Dr. Krish Kandaya's wonderfully challenging book, God is Stranger. What happens when God turns up? 
And if you find these messages intriguing, then you should get the book. Uh, Dr. Kandaya has 12 fabulous chapters. Pastor John and I will only be presenting six of them in the weeks ahead. So there's a lot to unpack that we won't even get to ourselves. We began last week in the Garden of Eden, and today we get to spend significant time with the great patriarch Abraham and his wife Sarah. Now, in each chapter of his book, Dr. Kandaya begins with a very short summary of where he's going to be taking us in the chapter. And here's what he says about Abraham and the stranger. Chapter 2, in which an old refugee invites three strangers for dinner and gets more than he bargained for. And we see that trusting God is never as simple as it seems. Hmm. Well, let us begin. I invite you to open your Bibles with me or your Bible app to the very first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, chapter 18. Genesis, chapter 18. In fact, if you have the church app, you can open that up. Uh, One of the very first things you'll see on the home screen after the sermon notes is Bible. Click on that. Click on read. It'll pop you right up into the chapter that we're reading for today, in which case, Genesis, chapter 18, beginning at verse 1. The Lord appeared to Abraham by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the entrance of his tent in the heat of the day. Okay, a couple things we should mention before continuing. First, this is what scholars call a theophany, uh, meaning a, a story in which God, Theo, makes an appearance on earth. Uh, Abraham has talked with God in the past, but for some reason, God chooses this time to come in disguise, incognito. Abraham simply sees random travelers, strangers, coming to his tent. But this verse is a gift for us, actually, as readers. We now know more than Abraham knows uh, about the situation. We're able to observe how the drama transpires with that added insight. Last week, we encountered Adam and Eve hiding from God behind the trees of the Garden of Eden. Today, it seems that God is uh, hiding from Abraham by the trees of of Mamre. God in disguise was a popular trope in the ancient world. In fact, Homer's classic masterpiece, The Odyssey, has a similar scenario. In it, Homer writes, I and the gods in the guise of strangers from afar put on all manner of shapes and visit the cities beholding the violence and the righteousness of men. On May 8th, 1945, World War II officially ended, and that day became known as VE Day, or Victory in Europe. In England, when Prime Minister Winston Churchill pronounced that the war was finally over, the streets of the nation's capital began to flood as people came out to celebrate. This photo was taken on that very day of Queen Elizabeth and King George VI on their balcony at Buckingham Palace. Oh, and their two daughters... Uh, Princess Margaret, age 15, on the far right, and Princess Elizabeth, age 19, on the far left. The daughters wanted to share uh, in the celebration. They wanted to leave the palace and join the festivities. And so, with their parents' permission, they left later that evening with a group of 16 people. Princess Elizabeth wore her auxiliary territorial service uniform that you see her wearing in that picture. And she pulled a cap down over her face to avoid recognition. Now, she wasn't trying to hide her identity as much as she wanted to be out and make an authentic connection with her people 
on that historic day. It would be the last time that Elizabeth would be able to be out in public unrecognized. She soon went on to become the nation's longest reigning monarch in English history. In 2015, a film called A Royal Night Out was made to commemorate what Queen Elizabeth has called one of the most memorable nights in my entire life. Verse 2. Abraham looked up and saw three men standing near him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent entrance to meet them, and he bowed down to the ground. He said, my Lord, if I find favor with you, do not pass your servant by. Let a little water be brought, and and wash your feet, and rest yourselves under the tree. Let me bring a little bread that you may refresh yourselves, and after that, you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. Hospitality in the ancient Near East, and especially within uh, Israel, was one of the most important customs uh, in any community. In the desert communities, local people had a duty to uh, feed and protect strangers from the hostile uh, elements of the environment around them. Dr. Kandaya notes that in the ancient world, long before highways, emergency roadside services, and cell phones, traveling between cities was actually a very dangerous enterprise. In fact, it took something big for people to travel outside their hometown and surrounding areas. Waldemar Johnson, in his book, Old Testament Ethics, writes this, travel in the ancient world was only undertaken for grave reasons, often negative in nature, such as flight from persecution or search for food and survival. Hospitality, under those circumstances, has little to do with modern tourism, but embraces the biblical equivalent to our policies regarding refugees, immigrants, and welfare. How poignant that God should choose to take on the persona of a hungry, tired, and thirsty traveler. As Dr. Kandaya puts it, a would-be refugee with no place to stay. Here is God waiting to be invited in. Now, in the ancient Near East, it was customary for strangers to make themselves known by standing at a visible public space and then waiting for someone to offer them a place to stay. Abraham jumps right up and starts attending these three male travelers. He runs to greet them. He bows in humble reverence. He welcomes them into his tent. He offers to bring them a little bread uh, for themselves to refresh. And remember, he only sees weary travelers here. But nevertheless, he's treating them like royal guests, which we know they actually are. Verse 6 through 8. And Abraham hastened into the tent Sarah, to the tent to Sarah and said, Make ready, quickly, three measures of choice flour needed and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and he took a calf tender and good, gave it to the servant who hastened to prepare it. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that had been prepared and he set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. As my friend Jack likes to say, I am never too busy to have my wife go and help you with something. Evidently, Abraham, uh, Jack learned that from Abraham, uh, who enlists Sarah's help in getting a little bread for the travelers. Actually, he asked her to get three measures of flour together. That's roughly 60 pounds of bread dough, Uh, a lot more than I made. In fact, Don said, oh, it's too bad that this wasn't next week's scripture. Then we could have had that bread for communion. I'm like, maybe a few of us could have had that bread for communion, but 
definitely wasn't three measures of flour. Uh, Abraham also kills the fatted calf, brings some milk and cheese. He's basically setting up a feast for an entourage much larger than just the three men that appeared at his tent. That is ancient Near East hospitality. Verse 9. They said to him, where is your wife, Sarah? And he said, there in the tent. Then one said, I will surely return to you in due season, and your wife, Sarah, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent entrance behind them. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in age. It had ceased to be with Sarah after the manner of women. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, after I have grown old and my husband is old, shall I have pleasure? Now, God had told Abraham before that he and Sarah would become the parents of a great nation. But despite, at this point in the story, being 99 and 89 years old, respectively, Abe and Sarah still didn't have a child. But here, Sarah hears for the very first time herself the promise of that offering from God. And it made her laugh. Now, she knew how the human body worked, and at her age, not all of her parts were still working the way they used to. So she laughed at herself. What a crazy idea. Verse 13. The Lord said to Abraham, uh, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I'm old? Is anything too wonderful for the Lord? At the set time, I will return to you in due season, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, oh, yes, you did laugh. Now, it's a bit of, strange, of a strange story, right? Because the narrator keeps switching back and forth between, are these travelers or is this the Lord? Uh, I'm guessing that's for our benefit as readers, right? That we already know the secret identity of the travelers, or at least of one of the travelers. And evidently, God takes a little umbrage at Sarah's chuckle and asks the question, that should make all of us stop and ponder. Is anything too wonderful for the Lord? Biblical scholar Walter Brueggemann in his interpretation commentary on Genesis says, this is the fundamental question that every human person must answer. Is anything too wonderful for the Lord? Here's an elderly couple who God called close to 25 years prior. They were called to leave their home as refugees and embark on an adventure that would lead to not only the birth of their child, but to the birth of an entire nation. Now, 25 years, that's a long time to wait for that promise, especially when you're in your 90s. Is anything too wonderful for the Lord? Now, we can't blame Sarah for laughing, can we? I mean, we've all been there at one time or another, maybe not uh, in the realm of conception and childbirth, but, but what is it that you have been waiting for? What have you been hoping for and praying for? What has your heart been longing for, either for yourself or for someone that you love? Maybe like Abraham and Sarah, it's something that's been decades in the making. And you know, you know in your head, nothing is too impossible for the Lord, but it sure doesn't feel like God is planning on getting around to answering that prayer, that longing, that hope anytime soon, does it? Dr. Kandaya acknowledges that for many of us, if we're being honest, we might admit that this is not the life, this is not the relationship with God that we had bargained for. He boldly asks, is God still here through the tough times, or has a stranger 
hijack the controls. And if God himself is that stranger, how on earth is he to be trusted with the leadership of our lives? Why does he make himself so unrecognizable? These are honest and faith-filled questions. You will not be struck down by lightning if you raise them in your own hearts. And it's at this point that the story takes a turn, quite a challenging turn and unexpected. Verse 16. Then the men set out from there, and they looked towards Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do, seeing that Abraham shall become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. Now, having been refreshed, the weary travelers now continue on their journey towards the direction of Sodom, which happens to be the town in which Abraham's nephew Lot has also settled. And we get this incredible inside look, if you will, at the thoughts of God, that God is pondering on whether or not he should uh, let Abraham in on his plans for the city. Verse 19, no, for I have chosen him, says God, that that he might charge his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, how great is the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah and how very grave their sin. I must go down and see whether they have done all together according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. God decides that since Abraham is going to be the father of a great nation, he's also going to be in a position of extreme influence. And God wants to make sure that Abraham understands that God is about justice and righteousness. And God wants Abraham to have a personal stake in what's about to take place. God wants him to get involved, to intervene and intercede. So, um, about these cities, Sodom and Gomorrah, says God... I have heard some horrible things. Now, it appears at this point in the story that Abraham has finally connected the dots and he realizes uh, he's standing before the Lord God Almighty. And now he is aware that this terrible future awaits these two cities. Old Testament scholar Chris Wright notes that the Hebrew word for outcry is a technical term for the cry of pain or the cry for help from those who have been oppressed or violated. So terrible atrocities are taking place in the city, and God cannot just stand by and do nothing. This passage tells us that God not only hears our prayers when we lift them up to him, but God also hears the outcries of those who have been violated. Dr. Kandaya notes, God is more interested in forming character than forcing control. More concerned about teaching us his ways of justice than enforcing his plans on us. More intent on molding us than manipulating or micromanaging us. And so God has told Abraham what is about to transpire. Verse 23, then Abraham came near and said, 
Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not forgive it for the 50 righteous who are in it? I mean, far be it from you to do such a thing, to slay the wicked, the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? God has chosen to reveal his plans to Abraham, plans of justice for a city of wickedness, because God wants Abraham to be about doing righteousness and justice. And so when Abraham hears the plans, he appears to take his job seriously, and he starts questioning the justice of God's decision. Oh, come on, what? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city, he asked God. You're not going to destroy them as well. I mean, that doesn't sound like a just God to me. Kind of a bold take, don't you think, right, to ask before God? But, but the rabbis over the centuries have commented on how this is a powerful statement about uh, this story of what it means for us as humans, right? That we have an opportunity. No, Rabbis say we have a responsibility in the ongoing maintenance of the world, that we as human beings must be about justice and righteousness, and we are called to intercede on behalf of those in need. That is exactly what Abraham is doing here. He is interceding. Verse 26, and the Lord said, if I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will forgive the whole place for their sake. And just like that, God agrees with Abraham. Sure, 50 righteous among them, absolutely consider it done, says God. Abraham wants to see what is it that God values more? Is it about destroying the wicked or caring for the righteous? It it appears now, based on God's response, that the righteous seem to have a chance. Verse 27, Abraham answered, Let me take it upon myself to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the 50 righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And God said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. And so we begin this back and forth between God and Abraham and God back again. Well, we go from 50 to 45, then from 45 to 40, then from 40 to 30, from 30 to 20, until God agrees that if even 10 righteous people are found in the city of Sodom, that would be enough. Now, there's two ways of looking at this passage. One of them is to think of it like Abraham and God haggling in a marketplace over the price of an item for sale, right? Abraham's like, how low can I get God down on this to agree on? But if you think about it, that's probably not what is happening here, right? Because you see, at each request, God quickly agrees with Abraham. Okay, okay. God's not holding out. God's not trying to make arguments for the sinfulness of the people and to raise that make-or-break number. No, God truly does seem to want to save the city. So another way of looking at this passage is to go back to what Dr. Kandaya said about God being more interested in shaping our character and teaching us his ways of justice than forcing us to believe in a certain way. More than any specific number that God agrees to, it seems that this story is showing that God is indeed a God of justice. He is not an angry deity bent on destroying people on a whim. 
Walter Brueggemann says the implication of this exchange is that if even one righteous person was found, then God would save the entire city for the sake of that one. And God wants Abraham to grow in his understanding of what that means. Dr. Gundaya pulls out three powerful insights from this interaction between God and Abraham. First, he says that intercession is vital to God's people. Like way back in Genesis chapter 12, when God first called Abraham and Sarah on this crazy adventure, God has said that through them, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Well, here we have Abraham interceding on behalf of strangers, trying to save a pagan city from God's judgment. And if that's not being a blessing to others, I don't know what is. As people of faith, friends, that's our job as well. Right? As we read the paper or listen to the news, as we move through this world, there will undoubtedly be issues and situations that break our hearts. It's not enough to just feel those feelings. We then must pray for those people and situations. Write it down somewhere. Be diligent about lifting those up to God. We also have friends and family members, neighbors who are going through difficult times. Pray for them. Write it down somewhere. Be diligent about lifting those concerns up before the Lord. We have a congregation that has people in need. Sign up to be a part of our prayer team. Every week, you'll get a couple of emails each week about people in situations that need God's intervention. Pray for those people. Call the church office. We'd be glad to put you down and get you on that email list. But we are called to, to call upon God's mercy for a world that is hurting and in need. Don't be so focused on yourself that you neglect the opportunity to be a blessing for others. Second, as people of faith, we can have a powerful influence on others. Do not underestimate your potential. Because God was willing to include Abraham in his decision-making process regarding the destiny of the people of Sodom, we can see uh, uh, something of the potential influence that righteous people can have in a community. I mean, if only 10 righteous people were found in Sodom, the entire city would have been saved. When we seek to become a faithful presence in our families and in our communities, we can bring hope and help to the wider population. Now, nobody's perfect, so please don't let that word righteous become a stumbling block to you, thinking, oh, that's nothing that I could ever possibly attain. May we be the kinds of people that God has called us to be, that we can make a difference, whether we're able to see that difference or not. And of course, the one man whose ultimate righteousness did save everyone was Jesus, and we'll hear more about him before this series is over. And finally, through intercession, our relationship with God can grow and deepen. By letting Abraham in on his plans and inviting him to, to pray, to intercede, God opens up a depth of relationship with Abraham that Abraham couldn't have known otherwise. As Dr. Kandaya says, prayer is not the exchange of demands, a wish list of things we're trying to nag God into fulfilling. It is a transforming means of developing a friendship with our Lord God. You see, when we pray for others... 
and for our world. When we plea for mercy on behalf of those in need, we are connecting with the heart and the character of God. And remember, God is not some divine vending machine that simply exists to dispense whatever it is we may ask for. No, God is the creator of the world, the author and finisher of life, the God of justice and righteousness. When we pray, we are connecting and entering into a relationship with him and seeking to become part of God's plan for wholeness and reconciliation for the world. Prayer isn't about getting God to change his mind. Often we discover when we pray, we are the ones who change along the way. Now, I know we're running short on time, but I have to briefly cover what transpires in Genesis chapter 19 because it is a crazy culmination to this story. So when those two strangers who left Abraham's tent, when they arrive in Sodom, we are told by the narrator they are indeed angels. And Lot is sitting by the gates of the city, and he sees the the travelers coming. Uh, He, like Abraham, rushes over to offer hospitality. He invites them to come to his house and spend the night. He sets food before them. He feeds them like a good host. And then, then we get to verse 4. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house, and they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we may know them. Lot went out of the door to the men, shut the door after him and said, I I, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Now, this is indeed a very difficult story because of the subject matter. And this mob comes to Lot's house wanting to sexually violate his guests. Make no mistake, there is no expression of love or even lust here. This is all about power and humiliation. Now, something to consider by, according to Walter Brueggemann, the phrase, the men of Sodom, uses a synonym of the word that we learned about last week in Genesis chapter 2, Adam. Remember, Adam means human being or humanity. The actual word used here in chapter 19 is Enosh, and Enosh, synonym of Adam, is never used to mean simply male. So Brueggemann translates the verse as the people of Sodom, young and old, surrounded the house. He says, we must include then that uh, this included women as well as men, young and old, basically the whole city according to the narrator, was in on the abuse. That the sexual violence that was being demanded was part of an entire city, not just the men. Now, this is often a scripture passage that is used to condemn homosexuality, but really when you look at it deeper, that's not a fair connection to today's LGBTQ community because this is a passage about sexual violence and abuse. Now, When it comes to the sin of Sodom, popular wisdom has it that it was purely a sin of sexual, if not uh, completely homosexual, nature. Both Walter Brueggemann and Gerhard von Rahn indicate that the Bible has a number of grievances throughout the scriptures against the city of Sodom. Isaiah chapter 1 verse 10 and chapter 3 verse 9, the reference to Sodom is to their barbarity of their administration of justice. Jeremiah 23, 14 speaks of a number of irresponsible acts that the people of Sodom committed, including adultery, lying, and an unwillingness to repent. 
And the prophet Ezekiel says point blank in Ezekiel 16, 49, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and the needy. Kathleen O'Connor in her Smith and Helwey's commentary on Genesis writes this, the sin of Sodom symbolizes various forms of wickedness in many texts, but primarily most biblical references to Sodom and Gomorrah view them as symbols of massive destruction rather than a list or examples of particular sins. So Lot tries interceding on behalf of his guests. He comes outside, please, please, my brothers, don't do this, but the lynch mob will not hear it. And in another very uncomfortable part of the passage, Lot even offers his two daughters to the mob. But but fortunately, angels intervene before anyone gets hurt or taken advantage of, and the mob is struck with blindness. Although it makes you wonder what kind of father Lot actually was, doesn't it? It's at this point that God really only has one option that's left on the table, and that is destruction, a la fire and brimstone kind. God invites Lot and his family to flee before the city is leveled, which also takes some twists and turns, and so I commend it to your reading later, the entirety of this chapter. But it is indeed a crazy and very strange story. Now, there are lots of takeaways on these passages. I'm assuming the Holy Spirit has already been speaking in your hearts, and what uh, one of us is, is hearing from God is probably very different from what another one is. But, but I want to go back to the issues of hospitality and intercession, how we treat the stranger, and how we intercede on behalf of those who have been ostracized, violated, those who have been victims of prejudice and hatred, That's what matters. In fact, it matters a great deal to God. Biblical hospitality involves being open to whomever it is that God brings across our pathway. It means letting go of our preconceived notions about someone because of their race, religion, ethnicity, politics, sexual orientation, vaccination status, immigration status. I mean, the list can go on and on. It means being self-aware enough to acknowledge that we all have biases when it comes to other people because they're not from here, not like us, not part of our tribe. To be persons of radical hospitality is, as Kathleen O'Connor puts it, to live confidently with God who takes away fear and to put on the mind of Christ Jesus. And who knows? we might just be entertaining angels unaware. May our radical hospitality also involve a commitment by us to pray for others, to intercede for those in need, whether they're people we know or people in situations we've just heard about. My brothers and sisters of faith, we absolutely have a role to play in this world, in this community, in this family that God has placed us. If nothing else, start today by making a list of people that you can be praying for on a regular basis to God. And who knows? While we're practicing hospitality and intercession, we might just come to understand this God who often appears as stranger. Man, this is such a good series. Wait until next week. And all God's people said...
Amen.